Welcome to the Our Innergate podcast. We're leading the education rebellion for nurses by nurses. Your hosts, Karen DeMarco and Antra Boyd, asked me to do this intro because of my sexy voice. You're welcome. Get ready to be enlightened, entertained and inspired by experts who don't just think outside the box. They blow it up and want to resuscitate your love for learning. When you're finished, listen for instructions on how to check off one of those CE credit boxes by heading over to the rnegade.pro website. Keep your knickers on. The show is about to start. Actually, knickers are optional. We'll never know. A couple weeks ago, came over for a dog walk, and it was during the, the height of the pandemic. You said you saw something, nurses engaged in something, and you were struck and inspired by how you might be able to share something that you've seen. I'm assuming it's something that beneath the surface of the I'm not a, I'm actually not a piece of shit thing that that you know ground of beingness that you saw is that something that you would share with them? Like what was inspiring? What, what did you see in, in so, that? I remember the conversation. And I, I don't remember exactly how it was in my head then, but I do remember what was behind it, which was seeing that, that nurses, and, and there are other people who fit this bill, but nurses was what specifically came to mind, are so defined by service. Like your value is your ability to help. Your value is your ability to make somebody's experience a little bit easier or, or last a little bit longer if it's kind of end of life or whatever it is. That, and there is an inherent red herring in that because it feels like, well, if I stop, even if it's just to brush my teeth or maybe have some food or some semblance of a life, God forbid, or, or something like that, I am losing value. I'm diminishing my value because that time is not spent servant. That time is not being spent helping. I know this from my work with a lot of people, but it just struck me that, boy, there's a group who, if they saw that it isn't a choice between having balance in your life, but being less valuable and mattering less, or really mattering, but having no semblance of a life. I mean, obviously, if those were the two choices, most people are going to unfortunately give up on their life to serve until they can't. And then they're going to give up on serving to have a life. Whereas if you see, no, 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 these are not, those are the two bases of the triangle. And the apex of the triangle is seeing that, that your well-being, your contribution is what it was there before you started nursing. It's in your presence. It's in your being. It's in the overflow of care that comes through you, whether you ever apply it or not, then you would start to see, oh, wait, these aren't, it's not a choice between the lesser of two evils. There is higher ground here. There is an opportunity to simply be care. And sometimes that will come out in nursing and, and all that that entails. And sometimes that will come out in mumming or dadding or partnering. And sometimes that will come out in being the one person at the grocery store who doesn't want to kill everybody. And, and, and the one person in traffic who doesn't want to run everyone off the road. And sometimes it won't even come out. And yet somehow, wherever you are, people will settle. Whether you say anything or not. And suddenly you're not having to make a false choice between caring and contributing or having a life. And I just think that's really worth knowing. I have always wondered how I would show up in, in nursing in the clinical realm now compared to before I saw what I saw because of what you just said, like, would I show up as myself and care like without all this extraneous stuff going on or what if they, you know, can't survive without me if I take a day off or, you know, all of that stuff that you talk about. And I, because I left the clinical realm 
you know, right after all of this changed for me. And so it's, that's such a curious, like I've been so curious what that would look like in the, in the, you know, hospital or in the clinical setting. It's, and maybe it, it would be the same as it is now with my own clients, you know, because I help advocate and I do find that that's what is the magic is just showing up like more than anything I say or do. That seems to be where the magic is. Yeah. Maybe the reason you haven't gone back is because of what you've seen, what you've seen. <laughs> well, I, but you know, because it's so high paced and stressful and, you know, every, it, it seems like everybody has a lot on their mind and, you know, we're saving lives and there's politics and whatnot. I mean, again, that's a story that I'm making up right now, but I kind of have always been curious about what I, how I would be in relation to that now versus 10 years ago. And here's where it gets to me. This is the, this is the cool bit. Forget everything else. <laughs> like here, it's what if high paced and stressful were not synonyms? Yeah. What if high paced and chill were synonymous? What if high paced and in flow were synonymous? We just have this association culturally that high paced and stress have anything to do with one another. Totally. Yeah. You know, I, I often go to um, John Wooden. So he coached UCLA basketball forever. And, you know, they went to 10 national championships. And I think won 10 national championships had three undefeated seasons. Like he's the guy. And, and he, he, one of his number one, he had like all these adages and, and his number one adage was be quick, but don't hurry. Mm-hmm. And, and I've always loved that because it implies it's not like you can get life to go any slower, but, but the hurrying, the urgency, that's fear, mm-hmm. that's our own fear. Mm-hmm. That's nothing to do with life. We fear that if we don't push ourselves, then something terrible will happen. And it's usually not even defined. It's just something terrible. Mm-hmm. Well, if you start to see, well, shoot, that's, that's just me scaring myself with imaginary futures. It's actually not that hard to be with whatever's actually happening. We, we're made to go at the speed of life. And life sometimes goes quite quickly and sometimes doesn't. The stress, the pressure... The stuff that burns us out, that's the add-on. And I'm not saying anybody does it on purpose. It's, it's what I call the innocent misuse of the gift of thought. Mm-hmm. But boy, it can really fuck us. <laughs> I'm not allowed to use technical terms like that? Yes, yes, yes please. <laughs> yes, that, and, and that would be, um, this is the cool bit, part 2A. <laughs> um, I was just thinking... The last, I was thinking as you were speaking about the last shift I ever worked in a hospital. And it was, uh, I was a clinical coordinator on night shift. I was um, a preceptor. So I had, I had new, new orientees, like two of them. Um, So I was kind of their resource person. They were finishing up their orientation, but they still needed help. I had my own, uh, it was a cardiothoracic, they did bypass, which is a very busy patient, like just one-to-one patient and you lots of drips and lots of, you know, so I'm doing the schedule, clinical coordinator, resource person for two orientees, recovering my own very difficult patient. Everyone's busy. We're short staffed. I'm the IV nurse. So if they can't get IVs in on the floors above us, and my, this story is not rare, right? Uh, on the floors above us, if they, they try their two sticks and if they can't get it in, they call uh, the IV nurse because we do them more often and we're just better at it because of that. And at midnight, the pharmacist went home. So we had to mix our own drugs. So at all those roles, and for the first little bit, I was in, I'm just doing it, you know, like I'm doing it and it's fine. And then the the thing that made me go from, high-paced in flow to high-paced stressed and where I made a med med error because four o'clock you have to dish out your meds you know that's like a typical schedule time and I gave uh, I was giving actually a medication to another person's patient I think because they were busy and I gave it on a six-hour schedule instead of an eight it was a beta blocker 
Thank God it wasn't a very dangerous drug. The blood pressure didn't even change, but I, I was exhausted and it was, I wasn't exhausted until that moment. I was tired, but in flow, like just, there was wind beneath my wings and I could do all this. And then something happened where I lost it and I just was not focused. And I just like, I was stressed instead of high paced and flow. I was high paced stressed. And I went into the, and I tried to write myself up. And this is the sneaky thing about hospitals because I was discouraged by the nursing supervisor. Look how how much you have going on. You know, it's not your fault. This is whatever. I'm like, no, this is why we're short staffed is because you don't want your numbers to show medication error on this shift. We need to show this. I'm willing to get fired for it. You know, like things need to change. And I, I had to write myself up because nobody would write me up. And I went in the next morning and I told the nurse manager, I can't, I can't do it anymore. What do you think happened in that moment? Because I, I can't, I know the difference between, and what you were saying being, it has implications for patient safety. It has implications for quality of life on the unit. It has implications for quality of life at home, not just for nurses, but for anybody. Mm-hmm. What do you do when that switch flips? So I can answer the first question better than the second question. So the first question, what do I think happened? Yeah. You dropped out of the moment and got up in your head. That is all. No more. Nothing more than that. Happens. Right? It's actually incredibly typical. If you hear people talk, you know, who are in uh, crisis situations, you know, the helicopter crashes, the car crashes, the, you know, something is going on. They're amazing what they do until... It's over and then they freak, right? Well, that's the same phenomenon. When we are in the moment, responding to the moment, we are made for that. But as soon as we step out of the moment and think about it, oh my God, what on earth at this? And what if this had happened? And oh, right, and we're, we're lost. Now, we can find the moment again. It doesn't go anywhere. We just go up into our heads for a bit. But because people don't understand that, they think it's more than that. They think it's more significant. It's about them. It's about the world. It's about this. It's about that. Now, I'm not saying that what you saw about, hey, actually, it would be worth me writing myself up so this changes. That sounds like common sense wisdom. And that's what happens is when we settle back down, we know what to do. So it's not that because we can be in flow, we have to work 24-7. Because we can if we have to. Like I remember having a conversation with, um, you know, with a friend and, and you were commenting on our work ethic and, and all that and our, our willingness to work through and, and do things. And I said, you know, we would be two of the people that if there was a war on, I would really want on our side. Problem is there's not a war on. And it's, it's kind of seeing that we, the fact that we can doesn't mean we sh- always should. It's just good to know you can't. If you have to, it doesn't mean it's good design to set up the system. So you always have to, it's terrible design. And so it's, you know, there are just different roles we have in different things. There are times where we have some say in the, how the system runs. And then we want to design the system to support people, but there are times where we don't. And it's good to know we can, if we have to, like we can run with it. We can operate and flow in any situation. Um, but that's not a reason to go 24 seven, you know, cause uh, you know, we have these organisms, these biological organisms, I think probably as nurses, you're more aware of them than I am. Right. And, and they, they have limits. Our spirit doesn't, our, our, our capacity doesn't, but these things do and they get impaired with lack of sleep. They get impaired with stress. They get impaired with a lot of things and that affects our judgment. And so in some ways, like I actually think one of the most helpful things about understanding how we work at a a mental level is so helpful isn't because we will always work better. It's we're quicker to spot when we're off our game. So we do less damage. I've, I've always said, in, in, in any sort of work type setting, regardless if it's corporate, nursing, sport, like any work type setting, that the two most helpful things to learn are how to be at your best more of the time 
and how to notice when you're off quicker so that you do less damage. And if you're in a culture that doesn't support that, I mean, in healthcare, what does that, I mean, what does it look like then, you know, because we can notice that I've been working 24 hours straight and I'm exhausted and I'm about ready to fall flat on my face, but if they need a body, they need a body. Yeah. Right. And so, well, so this is, this is where trying to come up with generic answers for individual situations, I think is profoundly unhelpful. There isn't an answer to that. There isn't a way to, to, to deal with that. One thing is, so I, I remember having a, a doctor come on one of my trainings. It was actually the same training that Karen was on, a, a different version of it, but an early super coach academy. And he got a bit upset. I mean, he took me aside afterward and said, well, you know, I, 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 this is all very well and good, but if, if I, if, if I have a patient with a broken leg, I'm going to set the bone, not talk to them about their understanding of thought and stress and blah, blah. And I said to him, look, if I knew how to do that, I think I would too, but I can guarantee you that there's a lot less people with broken legs than you think there are. And so there are situations, of course, there are situations where the, the structure doesn't allow for it and you have to make your individual call about what you do. But there are a lot less of those situations than we think. There's usually a lot more play in the system than we think there is. Okay, so then it follows that somebody like me in that culture should be able to that there is a way to change culture. There, there is a way to influence culture. We can influence culture. We can influence culture by our very way of being within it. Now, that doesn't mean we will always dominate culture, that the culture mm -hmm. will change the speed we want. Or, And in fact, there are situations where the best thing we can do is leave. Just less of them than we think. Because, and, and what I was about to say was, I know for me, I suspect for Karen, I just don't know for you, Andrea, yeah. but I got away with so much shit when I used to do real jobs because what I did just worked better. So it didn't follow the rules. It wasn't by the book, but it really did work. And so adaptations were made for me all the time. Now, in a, now, when I was younger, I just was like, cool. <laughs> like, I didn't think of it in terms of the larger system. As I grew up a bit, I started to say, oh, actually, most people do want it to work better. And if they don't start from the premise that it's never going to change or that they have to make boundaries or like, like come at it from a kind of an icky, mm -hmm. confrontive place... It's actually remarkable. If you've got a bunch of people who really want it to work better, you can often find a way for it to work better. Yeah, especially when they're coming from that place of abundance and overflow mm -hmm. that you're talking about instead of lack. Perfect example. I'd love this. I, I'd love to get your feedback on this. Or maybe I just want to talk and shine the light on me for a while. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know. Our guest on today's episode of Our Anagate is Karen DeMarco. <laughs> I just thought of a good example of what you were saying. Baths on night shift. Like coming from a place of like, oh God, you avoid it. It's 3 a.m. It's always before this 4 a.m. meds. Everybody hates to do it. They're short staff. You have to lift the 300 pound patient by yourself if you can't find somebody who will be your lift buddy. Because everyone's like, oh, I got to get my baths done. I only have so many, so much energy left. My bucket is only so full. And if I give what's in my bucket to someone else, well, then I won't have my full bucket to do my stuff. So everyone's very stingy with their buckets. But when you go, let's all do our baths together. You know, I remember it was one night I'm like, who wants to do my baths with me? And then I'll help you with your baths. And we had like six people going around the ICU and just, it was such a ball. And at that four o'clock AM thing, and it wasn't a policy. It wasn't part of the culture. It was just like, we got an idea. And that became the new culture when I was on. And when this other guy 
that Mahout was on. That's what we did. We got everybody in the room. And at that four o'clock a.m. time when your bucket felt empty, we were overflowing because it was so fun to do it together. That's a perfect example. Now, somebody might say, well, yeah, but that doesn't change the culture. And in my hospital, that wouldn't work. That's why I said you can't come up with a generic answer here. It's just that when you show up knowing you're okay, knowing that you can think yourself out of okay really easy. Right? Really <laughs> yeah. and, but also knowing that you're one thought away from being back to okay, right? You can fall back into it in a moment then you will find creative ways of doing things. Some of them will lead to cultural change. Some of them will lead to small within a culture change. Mm -hmm. But it, it, if you hear an example and go, that wouldn't work at my place because you're not hearing the real conversation. Right. This is about how we show up and what's possible, not what to do. That's going to be individual. That's going to be idiosyncratic. That's going to be different in every it, you know it, it reminds me of karen is fiona's story about the we talked to fiona and she was telling us a story about a nurse who she overheard um telling another nurse she was going to kill her and i don't know if you've heard the story but she said that you know, she as the manager on the floor she brought this nurse in and they ended up you know talking for like five hours and this nurse went on to become one of the best leaders in the hospital and and, you know, it was what Fiona said was that she was just present. She was there and she showed up. And that quality of, I mean, it just, in my mind, it was just, she was there in love, basically. And that, that nurse felt it and it totally changed things for her. And so I love that. And, and I love, and I want to pick up on, on what you just said, because when we ask a question like, what do I do? We assume the answer is behavioral. That's why it's, what do I do? Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, the answer is in a feeling. Exactly. It's just different when the feeling's different. And so what do I do? It's just the wrong question. So wait a minute. <laughs> How do I show up? How yeah. am I showing up? And if I'm showing up in that place of presence and care yeah. and, and, and lightheartedness, I mean, I, I was talking yesterday on, on my podcast, I was interviewing a woman and she got her start age 21. She's a little slip of a thing. She's smaller than you, Karen. <laughs> um, and she, she got her start as a boxing promoter, like, you know, negotiating with guys like Don King. And, and, <laughs> wow. you, know, she's, you know, she's this four foot something, maybe five foot, you know, woman. Uh, if, you, if I was a half inch shorter, I could collect disability. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. We could work on that. Okay. Yeah. Just. Yeah, just, you know, just please continue. But no, but so she was, she was talking about how she learned in that world that the way that she could get people to respond, because it was a completely masculine energy and it was, was humor and humility. Those were her words. She said, if I found, I, I found that if I invited people in instead of calling them out, nine times out of 10, it worked really well. Yeah. There's really no greater invitation to someone you say, all right, I'm a total moron. <laughs> so it's just like people recognize they're more moron. It's like we're all in this together. Or, or oh my gosh, let's just bait all these patients together. That'll be fun, like <laughs> with presents. And yeah. people were like, oh yeah, that totally looks fun. I want to do that too. I want to know. So this is, I guess the middle bit is where I'll tell a little bit more about your resume. Inside Out Revolution. Inside Out Revolution. Yeah. Was the first book. I, I, it's a good rec one. I recognized myself in it. I remember I, I read it on a plane flight, like just tore through it. And I'm like, it's just, it was like, I always wondered my whole life if maybe it worked that way. And then here was your book saying that's really the way it works. It's inside out. And then the space within and then creating the impossible just to give the, the series to everybody, um, books that have changed my life and spoken to me and deepened things that I already saw and thought maybe I was crazy for seeing the world that way. But here you are, you've written all these books. Those are just three of many. What still trips you up? Each time that I, I see something that I really thought was real is me. So there, there are times where I'll be frustrated with my wife and I'll, oh God, 
you know, how, how could she just, you know, I'm so busy. Right? And, and I'll get 30 seconds out of the room. <laughs> and then I'll suddenly go, wait, she's not here anymore. <laughs> I, this must be me. Damn it. And, and it's like, and I mean, I, 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 at the moment, the real one is I've, I've noticed how much of my time I'm having conversations with imaginary people in my head. Like it's shocking. Now I'm sure I've always been doing it, even though it feels like I'm doing it all the time, but it, they're never good, right? They're never, mm -hmm. God, you're really amazing. <laughs> Thank you. You're amazing too. <laughs> you're more of a fuckhead than I thought you were. Yeah, well, right? And it's like, I'm in the and there's nobody there. Right? Like it's subtle, but, you know. But it, but I, I keep catching wise to how much of my time I spend lost in thought, even now. And like, it's so liberating. Totally. And, you know, honestly, I do think you know people go. The measure of your development is how. peaceful you are and how calm you are. I think it's how quickly you feel like an idiot. <laughs> I think that's the measure of progress. And, and that's awesome. A lot of progress. I love that. <laughs> that's the best right there. Are you going to cry? This is <laughs> no, no, I, no, I'm, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's like the measure of wisdom is not not hearing those voices is how long until you realize that that's not you. Yeah. I mean, that's to me like right now. So I love that because, yeah, we do listen to that. I mean, it's just it's a human thing to do, I'm assuming for everybody. Right. Like, but but seeing it again, like, oh, yeah, right. Like, I'm just having this ongoing dialogue. And it's definitely never like, you're amazing. So are you. <laughs> no, I, I have this conversation it, 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 <laughs> we're having down to really two parts, right? And part one is we are, are made of the creative aliveness of life. We are made for reality. We are made to respond with intelligence and humor and heart to life. We, we are so far beyond our body and our thoughts and our entire experience moment by moment is being created by this creative force of thought. And then that's one conversation. The other conversation is no, really. And the no, really conversation has no end. Right? Because you keep seeing it more and more, deeper and deeper, wider and wider. So it's, it's, it, it, it's lifelong learning, but of one thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to ask, um, what is your... I'm going to say it. It's coming. Face yourself. I, I, so, uh, just let's pause and make up what we think she's about to say. I heard screw. So I'm going with scrotum, even though it makes no sense. <laughs> what what do I you can. think she's going to say? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I can come up with anything better than that. That's it. That's it. Michael, you know me so well. I, what was your, what I want a couple of your scrotal sleeve moments. So what I mean by that is, is referring back to a previous podcast. And this is kind of like a, you know, shameless plug of a previous podcast that we had. I also just want to say that I really did spend some time thinking, should I dress professionally for this? <laughs> and I kind of knew I didn't have to, but now we know why. Yeah, carry on. Scruddle yeah, sleep. Scruddle sleep moment. So I'm referring back to a podcast we did with Trish Mat Matimo, who's an expert in lymphedema, who told us a story. Because I asked her, what is oh, one God, of your Oh, God, no, you told me that story. Big wins. <laughs> like that story. Yes. Elephantitis, baby. But it was one of those big dramatic wins and I would like for people to hear who are listening to this the implications for health like if you own this for yourself and you share it with others which as you said in the beginning <laughs> fuck all you if I'm you know it's most important that I have this for myself but if you go into a caring profession 
and you own this for yourself. What have you seen? I mean, you're not a medical professional per se, but I know that you've seen some amazing mental health shifts uh, or um, even health, physical health shifts and working with people with. Yeah. And I mean, one of the gifts of doing this, I mean, I'm 31 years into doing this work. So I, I've, I've, I've seen things that you can only see over time. Yeah. Like, cause it's, you, you know, if you just have people come in and out and in and out and in and out, it, 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 you can't really tell the long-term implications, but if you've been around long enough, you start to meet people that you worked with five years ago, 10 years ago and see how their lives have changed. I mean, you and I have a mutual friend, you know, who was working with me and had these mysterious illness. And I pointed out to him one day, well, what if you don't? And, and, you know, we got a doctor involved because I'm not. And, and, you know, I said, look, if he says anything that I'm saying is dangerous, don't do it. But what if you, what if this really is the collected weight of a lifetime of thought believed? And after he stopped cursing me out, about two months later, he had that holy fucking mother of God moment of going, oh my God, I'm not sick. I really, really thought I was for a long time. And, and, and you start to see things like that. And I'm not saying all illnesses. It, 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 again, these are examples, not cause effect, push this button, get this result. But you start to see just how much of what seems to be wrong with people is the fruit of a misunderstanding playing out over time. Right? So um, I've got, because uh, I was um, drinking fizzy water and you need one of these to open it. Right? So this is a multi, for those of you listening, um, Michael is now holding up a corkscrew, can opener, jackknife, Swiss Army knife type tool. That's okay. Someday we'll be able to say that and make it an animation. Well, there you go. There you go. But, but now if I take this, this tool, which is designed to do a bunch of different things, and I try to use it as a hammer repeatedly, not only will I think hammering in nails is really hard, but I will probably start to, this thing will start to distort and not close properly and not work properly. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just misusing it. So when I say to people, there is nothing wrong with you, and they look at me like I am nuts, as I did to the people who said that to me, because I knew what was wrong with me, right? I had a lifetime of evidence. I had the suicides. I had, you know, all that shit. It was just, I didn't understand how it worked. And so I was misusing it, innocently misusing it. And I was reaping some pretty shitty results. It wasn't broken. I wasn't broken. There was nothing wrong with me. I just didn't understand how I worked. And I think it is so helpful to understand how you work, to have a user's manual for being human. Because it doesn't tell you, like the user's manual for my car does not tell me where I should drive. It does not tell me what speed I should drive at. It does not tell me what music I should listen to while I drive. It just tells me how the freaking car works. Press this level lever and you go faster. Press this lever and you slow down or stop. Spin this thing and you go right or left. Look in this and you'll see what's behind you. Like, you know, if this light comes on, it means that. That's all people need to know. We are so well made that when we start to understand how we work, what all these different things mean, we just can do it so much better. But there's nothing new. I mean, we've always worked the same way. It's just, we have a ridiculous cultural misunderstanding of it. Yeah. The Inside Out Revolution is another shameless plug of your book, but that is the best thing I've ever seen or closest thing I've ever seen to a user's manual. Because everybody fundamentally knows this somewhere, that that's yeah. how it works. And the validation and, and, and just the simple, not this way, this way. Yeah, I mean, like one of one of my my favorite examples of it because it's so stupid. <laughs> right? So, I'm, so I can understand it even. Go. 
That means I'll get it. <laughs> so I, 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 I went to Mallorca to teach a, 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 a seminar and it was this beautiful five-star resort. And I got there about four in the afternoon. The training was the next day. And I, they gave me an amazing room with this beautiful balcony overlooking the island. And I'm like, oh, it's heaven. And I couldn't get out on the balcony. And the, you know, I, I wanted to have a drink and watch the sunset. Right. So I, I try everything. Like I, you know, I jiggle the locks, I, I pull, I push. I, and I finally call down to the front desk and say, Hey, I, my balcony door is broken. And they said, have you tried unlocking it, sir? And I'm like, fuck off. Yes, of course I have. Right. I didn't say that probably. I might've, I don't think I did. In Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> they, so somebody comes up to the door, walks over to the door. Turns out it slid. <laughs> right. It was a sliding door. So it neither pulled nor pushed. The door wasn't broken. But man, had I created a story about the hotel and the staff and the ripoff and the this and the that. And afterwards, it was just like, oh, well, I'm a fucking idiot. So fair enough. And I got to enjoy having a nice glass of wine and watching the sunset on the balcony. Like, that's what's on offer here. <laughs> it's like getting over yourself and seeing actually things work pretty well. You just have to understand how they work. Laurel, when I worked in a hospital, there were all these initiatives all the time to help people become better teams, better communicators. I mean, we went through crucial conversations and the seven habits of highly, you know, it was just whatever flavor of the day. That was what we were teaching our staff in the staff meetings. And it was pretty consistent. I mean, you know, we, we did it. We did those things often. How can you, how do you imagine that this kind of conversation could, could be in, in the clinical setting, like just a conversation in the, in a staff meeting or more? Well, it has a fundamentally different goal. So all of those, I mean, all you mentioned two crucial conversations and seven habits, right? There's a million of them. There's a million know those two as well. They're behavioral interventions. They're, they're based on the idea that if I throw a brick through a window and you throw the same brick through a window, both windows will break. So just do what I did that worked and it will work for you. Okay. Now that absolutely is true if you're dealing with bricks and windows. So in a Newtonian world where cause and effect are predictable and linked, that's true. Now I come from a scientific family. I had a physics teacher in high school. Um, I'm pretty sure this would be a bad thing to say now, but he used to say to us, if, if you tell me, um, if you take a football and you tell me the, the, the altitude, the wind speed, the leg speed, I can predict within millimeters where that football will end up. He said, if you kick my dog, there's no telling what's going to happen. Living systems do not obey the laws of Newtonian physics. And so whenever you have a behavioral intervention, it's based on the idea that the key factor is the behavior. That's not true in a living system. So another example of it is uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist, gave a lecture at uh, Caltech about the South Sea Island cargo cults. So apparently in the, in the wake of World War II, there were thousands of islands in the South Seas that the Japanese and the Allies, you know, fought over. And in each one, what would happen is when the Allies would come in, they'd build these impromptu airstrips, like they'd just, um, you know, level out some dirt. And they'd, these big planes would come in and they'd always make sure they brought supplies for the people of the island to kind of win them over and get them on their side because you don't want the islanders attacking you, obviously, when you're trying to do that. Well, when they left, because they only occupied them long enough to get to the next island, it turned out that for decades, there were people on the islands who would go out every day to that flat bit of dirt. They would sit in the little hut. They would have coconut uh, earphones like yours, Antra, but made of coconuts, right? Connected by palm fronds. They would take sticks and do, you know, exactly what the guys had done to call forth the giant metal birds with medicine and food in them. But they didn't work. But they kept doing it because it used to work. 
That's the problem with reverse engineered solutions. That's the problem with trying to learn and repeat behaviors. Fantastic for inanimate objects, fantastic for a checklist, terrible with human beings. So the purpose of this conversation is to understand humans. And humans are highly variable, but they all operate according to very predictable basics. So if you understand the basics, you can account for the variances. So it's not a behavioral conversation. It is an understanding conversation. And that's the difference. Yeah, I would love to see this conversation in those staff meetings because, you know, the intent of those other ones is, is pure. You know, they're, they're... It's pure and it looks like a good idea totally. based on the brick through window theory. Yeah. But we're just not dealing with bricks and windows. Yeah, it actually no, puts it, a page around human potential. Like, like every book, 99.9 maybe plus percent of the books on the shelves at Barnes & Noble that tell you how to diet, health, whatever, you know, how much water you should drink, was reverse engineered. And it doesn't take into account, well, the manual's kind of built into your system. Like, you know, I, I always give the example I used to work in when I worked in ERs. People would come in with low sodium often because they were drinking water because somebody in some book or some guru said how many ounces per pound they should drink per day. They weren't thirsty. I mean, the sophisticated system mechanism we have and all the bodily processes that have to take place in order for you to feel the sensation of thirst well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> this guy said so many ounces per pound. Okay, here's my here's my version of that. So back <laughs> back when I was doing my suicidal depression thing, I um, make I it said, sound like a dance. That no, thing. Say, look, I do feel the need to qualify. It was real. It was hell. If you're going through it, the lightheartedness is not meant to to make light of it. I'm out the other side. I can talk about it like this. But when I was going through that, one of the big books at the time was Potatoes Not Prozac. And it was basically this research about how there was some chemical in potatoes that did something to your serotonin. And if you ate this many potatoes over this time, blah, blah, blah. Seriously? There was that book? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It was big. It was big. And so I did it and I did it by the book. Literally, I did it. You know, um, I did exactly the amounts. And, and I was thinking, this is great. I'm really sticking to it. I'm really, and, and um, Nina, my wife, after about a month said, are you okay? And I said, why? And she said, well, you seemed a lot more down than usual. And I, I was like, no, I haven't been because I've been doing potatoes. <laughs> like, and it didn't register on me that I was paying no attention to myself because I was following the prescription to the letter. Now, once I saw it, I, I stopped. And lo and behold, my energy came back and I started doing better. But, but I didn't even notice because I was just so sure the book must be right. Yeah. Now, it seems crazy to me now, but it didn't at the time. It seemed totally sane. And, and that is, so if I was going to sum up what, how it works in a different way, every behavior that people do, everything that people do is completely sane inside the, the frame of reference, the, the premises that they're operating out of. So if I think aliens are probing my brain, it actually is an act of sanity to put tinfoil helmets or whatever else I think is going to protect me from them on my head. That is not insanity. That is sane because it's preventing the aliens from probing my brain. If I think that the cause of my illness is, um, uh, oh, I don't even know what it would be, but like is, is a lack of potato, then eating potatoes is like the most sane thing in the world. If I think we have some um, relatives who are Jehovah's Witnesses and, and it, it, you know, it used to bug my wife that they'd try to convert us all the time. And I was like, oh no, Given that they think if we don't convert, we're, we're, we're damned to hell for all time. I'm really grateful they're trying. Yeah. To. Given that premise, the behavior is 100% sane. 
So when you're looking at behavior, the behavior is never nutty. You just don't understand the premise that somebody's working inside of. So we've got these really same people operating in utterly insane premises, like the cargo cult people. Mm-hmm. If it really worked that way, what they were doing is exactly what they should be doing. So when we begin to get a fresh look at our premises, at the thinking that we have that we think is true, and we start to see anything truer, our behavior will automatically change. It will automatically get better and more effective when our premises are more in line with reality. I've never heard you talk about it like that. That's new. That's like a... No, that's going to be a, I got to rewind and watch this again (laughs) moment. Yeah, well, think of the implications for, you know, I know we're kind of, as you say, going around the houses. We're kind of squirreling around here, but, you know, everything we've touched on has huge implications. And that one just for mental health, like nurses who deal with themselves, their own mental health, their patients' mental health, their family's mental health. I mean, some of the things that really trip me up, it's like, yeah, I could see it for depression. I can see it for anxiety, you know, like if you think you're like, that's a disease and not like a symptom of this sexually transmitted terminal condition we call life, you know, it comes with depression and anxiety and all those things. And you think it's, you label it as a problem, well, it's going to look like a problem. But the, the more serious ones, you know, like the bipolar twos and the schizophrenias and all that. Those are the ones I have trouble because they seem so debilitating. And it seems like the premise that they're operating under is fixed. It's like stuck. But I know there's people that you've worked with and that you, you know, that are colleagues of yours that don't see it that way. And I would really like to see it that way. There are people that I've worked with who are diagnosed schizophrenics who don't see it that way anymore. I mean, to me, You know, I always, I always feel like I need to be really wary when I'm saying anything that sounds vaguely medical, but you guys are vaguely medical. So, you know, you can, you, you can just say, I'm not a doctor when they play one on TV. I'm not a doctor, but, I, um, <laughs> but, but schizophrenia to me is where what's going on inside your head looks more real to you than what's going on outside your head. Well, that's every person I've ever met, just <laughs> less extreme, right? But there's a certain level of extremity of that at which it becomes deeply problematic. So it's not different. It's just more extreme. Like the volumes turned up louder. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a movement within, within our field, you know, one cause, one cure is the way it's sometimes talked about. It's like, it's all thought, but thought can manifest in a thousand different ways. You know, it's a one trick pony. It's just one hell of a trick. You know, when you hear something, but you just can't quite like put it together. I'm just kind of like antsy. Like I got to go back and watch what you just said because there's something, but I can't. Yeah. Well, but that's what I love about what you guys are doing is you can go back. Totally. If you do hear something, I always say this to people. If you hear enough to keep listening, there's something that you're seeing that's true. Like it's, it's actually also an answer, answer to your question about, well, how do you tell other people about this? We have a secret weapon. What we're pointing to is actually there. So even if we're really bad at pointing, there's a decent chance people will see it. And if we get better at pointing, there's a better chance. If there was two things, I think that the two things that I've gotten from learning, you know, hanging out with you for these years uh, it was the eight plus thing because I've seen that in every aspect of my life. Like in, in, if I say yes or no to a client, you know, and I, and I still get tricked if it's uh if it's an eight plus it's effortless and it's engaging and impactful. And I get as much out of it as they do. If it's a, you know, neutral to less and it's like, well, my mom wanted me to come. And I know the mom, so I feel like it's a favor. It's pushing a boulder uphill through tar. <laughs> and it's like, you know, because I'm not, yeah. there's not that engagement. And I get tricked, not as much anymore. But, you know, I'm doing stuff with my kids. Like, I would never have signed up to be the cookie mom. It was never, you know, it, it was. Um, so that in business and life 
And sometimes there are things that's not an eight plus. And when it feels like that, that's okay. Cause it's like, eh, it's not an eight, but it's beyond okay. It, it, it's, it's a nav system. It's warmer, colder. Yeah. Like yeah. For me, warmer, colder is still the best metaphor for how shit happens in the world that I have yet to find. So warmer, colder, that as a game, first thing to know about warmer, colder is the game doesn't start till you move. So this idea of waiting for answers. Well, that makes no sense in a game of warmer, <laughs> Because it doesn't start till you move. Right? So first thing is, if it's warmer, colder, I got to do something to just even get in the game. Second thing is, colder is not bad news. Colder is how I find warmer. Colder is not failure. Colder is part of the game. So if, if I start to see, oh, wait, I've got warmer, colder going on at two levels. I've got an inner warmer, colder, which is my, my emotions, my feelings telling me, hey, am I present or am I lost in thought? Right? And it's foolproof. Wow, I, am, I must be way out of my lane because I want to kill everybody. Right? That's good to know so that I can not trust my thinking for a little while. I'll be smart again in a minute. But right now, I must be a freaking idiot. Right? That's really helpful. Doing things in the world and noticing, wow, that did not get the response I wanted. Colder. Fantastic. Now I know any direction but this is worth trying. And, and so uh, to me, again, it's, I, 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 call it, I call it the kindness of the design, even though if I, I don't know whether anyone designed it and I don't know if, it's, if kindness even exists in the abstract, but it feels like that to me. We are so well-designed. We are so well-made. And all these things that we think are problems are just misinterpreted data, right? If I think, like, I was just thinking it's such a funny idea, but if I think my check engine light is telling me about road conditions or about what's wrong with your car, and I go to the mechanic and say, can you turn this freaking light off? That's a really terrible plan. But if I know the check engine light is telling me there's something up with my engine, I'm really grateful to have a check engine light. I don't want to fix it. I don't want to remove it. It's telling me when there's a potential problem so I can catch it early. And we're made like that. We have these built-in check engine lights. They're called stress. They're called fear. They're called anxiety. They're called pressure. Which are saying, hey, the way you're using your thinking right now is taking you to a bad place, you're overheating. And if you keep going, the engine's gonna break down. That's all it's saying. Doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, it's part of what's right with you. But if you don't understand that, well, anything can happen. Yeah, and how much time we spend trying to put duct tape over the light, take this yeah. pill, do this course, tap this, breathe that, yeah. <laughs> you know, shop, drink, Sex, anything to get yeah, rid of that. Just shut that light off. Yeah, that damn smoke detector keeps going off. Get rid of that thing. Or maybe check for fire. I don't know. <laughs> Just spitball in here. <laughs> the other thing, too, is it seems like there's a lot more room for a lot of eight pluses when... Because it's not, for me, it just hasn't been one. Like if I can discern now between warm and cold and when something's cold and I don't have anything on it, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to try that again. No big deal. Next. And then all of a sudden I have all of these eight pluses and it seems like a lot, but then it doesn't because I'm doing it. And it's pretty cool that there's, you know, you, you can do more than one and two things you can do three and four businesses or whatever it is in all parts of your life. Like I only thought for a long time that it was just my business because yeah. I seemed to really navigate it quite easily. And then I uh, saw like, Oh wait, this is for everything. This isn't just for business. This is for parenting and for, you know, health and exercise and nutrition, everything. Well, and that's why for me, I, I love coaching as a modality because coaching, as I understand it and practice it, is not about getting you somewhere. It's about teaching you about the car, getting more out of the car. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you've got the car running well, go where you want to go. That's not my domain. 
but I can show you what's wrong with the car, which is the way you're using it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <It> always. <laughs> There's never an actual problem with the car. I mean, I get physically there can be an issue, but it's not, that's not, that's rarely the actual issue. Well, and so often like for, for myself and our mutual friend, John, who is on the podcast. So it's okay. We could talk about him behind his back. Um, <laughs> uh, it was when the engine light is on. So this is the other most helpful thing. It's when things look bleak or dark or stressful, or I want to just throw my toys and run away. Um, I used to think I had to do something about that. Yeah. Like there was a course or a pill or a technique or something I needed to do to get myself out of that. But now it's totally different. It's just like, I just recognize I'm there. And the more I try to do something about it, the more I engage with it, the more I stress my system out and create inflammation in my body and symptoms downhill. But now it's just like, oh, and it's not, it's like you forgetting about the voices in your head that are fighting and then you kind of wake up to it. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of just waking up to it and like seeing it's the relief of knowing I don't have to do anything about it. I might still be sad. I might still be pissed off or frustrated, but it's just like that comes with a sense of relief. Oh, this is going to go away and I don't mm -hmm. have to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, it's breathtakingly liberating. Mm -hmm. I want to, if, if it's okay. Um, and, and, and if I can find it, uh, it's a, so I'm working on a new book. Um, called It's That Simple. Are we getting um, a sneak preview? Um, well, oh, uh, you might be able to. This is not, um, let me put some, let me put every apology around this so far. This is not yet fully edited. This bit of the books, I'm co-writing this book with my friend Mavis Karn. And so this is one of her pieces um, from the book. But I just think it's such a beautiful illustration of what we're talking about. And it's called The Bus Story. I was brought up in a family that for as far back as I can remember, shared the belief that any time a bus came by, we had to get on it and ride it to wherever it was going. We didn't know we believed this. It was simply a way of life to us that we never questioned. I, along with the rest of my family, spent most of my waking hours on buses, spent most of my money on bus fares, and found myself frequently lost and wandering around places I didn't want to be and wondering why I was always so tired and joyless and confused. One day, as I was standing at the bus stop, ready for another long day of bus rides, a man said to me, excuse me, but why are you always riding the buses? What do you mean? I asked with more than a little wariness. Well, every time I see you, you're always either on a bus or waiting for one. I just wondered why you seem to spend so much time bus riding, he said. Well, I said somewhat defensively, everyone knows that's what buses are for, to ride. My whole family has always ridden them all day long, sometimes all night long. He looked at me as though I was the one who was strange and said, that's not what buses are for. They're for getting you to where you want to go. Haven't you noticed that everyone doesn't always ride every bus? This man was beginning to annoy me with this peculiar idea. So I ignored him and climbed on the next bus. One day when I was feeling particularly tired, frustrated, and a little hopeless about my life, I looked out the bus window and saw people walking, sitting, laughing talking, just simply enjoying themselves. I very much wanted to feel what they seemed to be feeling. I decided to see what would happen if I just once let the bus go by without getting on. As I sat at the bus stop, I saw the next bus coming, and I looked around nervously to see if anyone from my family could see me. And then, instead of getting on, I let the bus go by. It was very strange, unfamiliar, a confusing sensation. Then another bus came and another, and another, but I let them all go by. It was still awkward and unfamiliar, but it was getting easier and easier. And soon I noticed that I still had the money I would have spent on those buses. And I hadn't gotten lost once all day, and the more buses I didn't get on, the more energy I had. Then along came a bus that was on its way to where I wanted to go. So I jumped on. I got off at my destination, and all of a sudden I knew the stranger at the bus stop had been right. Buses are just there to help me to go where I want to go. I don't have to ride the ones that will get me lost or take me to places I don't want to be. I had just believed something that turned out not to have been true. So it is with our thoughts. Some of them help us to get where we want to go. Some of them take us where we don't want to be. We don't have to hold on to every thought that comes into our heads. We just thought we did. 
Human beings are the only creatures on earth who are free to hang on to a thought or dismiss it. Human beings have both natural, healthy, creative, useful thinking, and we have learned habitual, sometimes helpful, but many times harmful thinking. When we don't realize the nature of our thinking, we feel at the mercy of our thoughts, doomed to think them over and over and over, and doomed to experience the consequences of old negative thought habits, emotionally painful experiences. But when we calm down, clear our heads, we return to our natural wisdom, our common sense, our innate well-being. Here is where we make good decisions, have great relationships, do our work with effortless ease and enjoy our lives. Sometimes we'll forget and get on the wrong bus, but we can always get off and come home to our health again. We never, ever, ever run out of chances to change our minds. Is it that simple? Well, the book's kind of called It's That Simple. <laughs> See what I did there? I did. I, did. I feel like I got to take a nap. <laughs> I think it's, it's the content and the voice, that radio thing you got going on. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. It's funny. It- Go ahead. Uh, well, my, mine is mine is more of a closer. So, hey, my real quick was it reminded me of of uh, when I heard Linda Pransky, another lady who um, really speaks to this understanding, say just kind of flat out, "Well, I don't have to think that if I don't want to." And I was so like, "What are you talking about? Like, who says that? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." Like. Of course, I have no control over that. And why, like, even if I did, I mean, I was kind of irritated by the whole thing, but it always stuck with me. And it feels kind of like riding the bus because I think I have to. Because that's, that's what I've always done, because that's what we do. Yeah. Or the other thing that people do is they try to prevent the buses from coming. Yeah. Equally impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I can't, I can't continue with the bus metaphor for this one, but the feeling like if I let that go, if I decided not to get on that bus, then I would be letting somebody get away with something or I would, but the only one you're really betraying is yourself because you don't have to think that you don't have to feel that. that was, that's kind of, that's the hardest. That was hard for me for a little bit. And then once I saw it, it's like, oh, there's no point. Like I'm not condoning what they did or how they behave or that they didn't show up for work and left it, you know, by I'm not fixing anything by ruminating about it in my head. So the big challenge that we've found with these kinds of conversations that I know will be hugely impactful for Mm -hmm. anyone, anyone, you know, I mean, this, any, anybody can listen to our negate podcast. Nurses can get CEs for it, whatever the challenge with these more, important yet nebulous conversations like throwing paint on the invisible man, how life works. It's like, what are the outcomes? (laughs) It's like you only, you know, if you could take three from this kind of conversation that would be helpful or or two, what would you, what would you say? I don't, I'm not going to hold myself to a number, but I'll, I'll share some of the ones I've seen in the time I've been having this conversation. A massive drop in stress. I I mean, I won't say eliminates all stress, just eliminates most of it. Because so much of stress is a habit and nothing to do with what we think it's to do with. Massively increased effectiveness because we're, we're just less inclined to follow our thinking when we're stupid and more inclined to follow it when we're present. A much, uh, almost like a return to original care. So I don't think anybody gets into your profession without caring. I mean, I might be wrong, but I don't think anybody starts there. And, and then you learn, oh, care causes pain, or care costs, or care hurts, or all that, and you find ways of carrying on without. But it's like all that falls away, because you see, it wasn't really protecting you. And what's back is, oh, yeah, this is why I do this. 
for that smile in that person's eyes, for those tears to dry up for, or start, you know, for that person to be comforted. Like that's, that comes back. That's a, a result. Um, this is where I cry. <laughs> well, but I mean, this is why this is, you know, I, I often talk about it as the second best feeling in the world. And the first is when you see it for you. Mm-hmm. But the second is when you see somebody else wake up to that. That's always been there, but they've just forgotten. They've lost touch with it. And it's God, there's a joy in remembering. And you can, in all three of the conversations we've had, you can hear the truth in it. Yeah. So why yeah. I get a little <laughs> emotional. <laughs> I believe the word is verklempt. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and it, it, it returns returns us to our uh, resilience that we were just, I, I, not, not to go from nebulous to specific example, I used to work in a pediatric intensive care unit and I'd see children die. And it was, I was, we were all resilient in that. And then we were told you should be suffering more. Let us bring the counselor in. Let us whatever. And we would get convinced that we should be thinking about this more and stuff. But that's kind of like why we were there. We knew that was part of the job. But then we were told we should be more traumatized than we really were. And then we'd believe it. And then you needed tools to cope with it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like, uh, I love uh, Dr. Zach Bush calls. He spent the first part of his doctoring career delivering babies and the second part of it in like the hospice, you know, palliative end of life care. And he calls it birthing an individual into the next life or into the next, you know, it's mm-hmm. just a beautiful way of, of seeing it. And I think we, we see it that way until we're told to see it differently. And then we suffer for it. Um, but thank you, Michael, for doing this. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you did her work for her. Excellent. <laughs> we'll have you on again. <laughs> yeah. This is great. It's it's so exciting to think that you could listen to something like that and get that bedtime story at the end and then get a credit for it. <laughs> Bonus for the credit. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much. Beautiful man. Should we title it or would it be plagiarism? It's, can we, um, what did we say? It's that simple. <laughs> can we take can we eggs, parasites, and it's that simple? <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Bye, guys. Okay. Thanks. So See you, Michael. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the RNA Gade podcast. If you're a nurse and would like a CE for listening to this, go over to the rnagade.pro website. Antra, spell that for me, please. That's R N E G A D E dot pro. Thank you. So go on the website, find the podcast, do the activity. And if you have any questions, contact us and we'll be happy to help. And if you can't figure it out, fuck. <laughs> 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 <laughs>